I walked on to the unit to see patient U.S. on the telephone. I could tell something was wrong. They appeared to be growing more and more stressed. As they were just sitting there quietly, obviously something being said on the other side. Patient U.S. all of a sudden erupted and slammed the phone down. A number of the members on the unit, both professionals and other consumers, jumped because of the sheer volume and impact of Patient U.S. slamming the phone. Patient U.S. proceeded to walk up to the nurse's station, which was covered somewhat, but there were openings, and Patient U.S. stood right on the line between the unit, and I have my quotations up, and the nurse's station. Recognizing quickly that Patient U.S. was now escalating, I went to the nurse's station to stand with my teammates and also do my best to aid Patient U.S. in whatever it was they were suffering from. Is my medication ready? Patient U.S. shouted. And although they were looking right at me, I could tell that they said it loud enough for all of the staff to hear. Sadly, that Patient U.S. had just discussed a medication change with the doctor. However, the orders have not gone through yet, and we were unable to have the medications that Patient U.S. was asking for. I want a new doctor. This doctor doesn't care about me, and I'm telling you right now, you guys better get me someone who does, or I'm going to tear this whole place apart. Patient U.S. was continuously growing agitated, and it appeared that there was not going to be any way for us to calm her down verbally. Although we sat for another hour and listened to Patient U.S. berate the other staff and this doctor who Patient U.S. has had more than one issue with. All at once I heard a loud bang and saw Patient U.S. slam their hand up against the bulletproof glass that is used to protect the nurse's station. I looked at Patient U.S., not sternly, not aggressively, my hand still at my side, and I said, please don't. Please don't what? As Patient U.S. slammed the glass once again. I again looked at Patient U.S. and asked them if they had remembered what these behaviors lead to, as we have discussed in the previous episodes, how often Patient U.S. is finding themselves in isolation, sadly restrained, and more often than not, sedated by some sort of substance, usually involuntarily due to aggressive, volatile, and reckless behavior. Patient U.S. then began to slam, as quickly as possible, that same bulletproof glass. And a crisis was called. End of note. I'm Louis Bianco, RN, CPS. And this is Episode 9, Crisis of Patient U.S. Initials used for confidentiality. Close cheap and old sneaks, I flow free, but no one knows me because I'm phony. I'm a rapid assessor, I'm the passive aggressor. You're a plastic pretender, in fact, you act as a censor. I defy you, not my truth, just what you find true. I'm not defined by fear, he defines you. Stone cold loner, show postponer, prone to alone, but been known to vulture. I'm a parasite, and I'm terrified of your glaring eyes. So oh, my friends, there, good morning, good morning. It's Thursday, August 20th, 2020. And I can't tell you that I'm surprised at what I walked into. Let's do a, a, quick, uh, a quick few deep breaths. Something to consider. 
something that I often must consider, not only because of the path that I've chosen, but also because of some of the conditions I exist with, is how often I am going to choose to be surprised by a behavior that has now shown itself to be a pattern. When I started to become more and more uh, anxiety-ridden, I was more and more traumatized every single time there was a crisis on a psychiatric unit in which I was working. The odds that there would not be crises in which I would have been expected to be calm and ready to engage in whatever way necessary were very low. The probability of that not happening was very low. So I found myself in some you know, highly terrifying situations on a daily basis in a leadership position. Something to think about. How often was I reacting as if I thought something was going to be different? It's like this startle re- response that we have, and I won't dive too far into this, but we become frightened by something that we are aware is most likely going to happen. An easy example is for anybody who deals with anxiety, the less you understand about anxiety, uh, the more fearful you may be when you experience anxiety. And because you then are fearful that you are experiencing anxiety, you increase your anxiety. And just to repeat that again, becoming fearful that I'm experiencing anxiety will make me more anxious. So if I understand my anxiety more, if I accept it as part of my composition at this moment, I may not be as surprised by it, I may not be as startled by it, and therefore I will react to it possibly differently or respond to the heightened reaction so that it lasts as short of a duration as possible. Simply by accepting it, And keeping somewhere in the back of my mind some sort of remembrance that it's going to happen. Until things are different, we are allowed to accept them as the same. Describing that whole cycle is, is even though it's kind of our opening statement, it's also a good transition as we're going to cue our transition music. (laughs) I do love this. Into crisis. What we're looking at at least on our unit this morning, and I'm going to take you in as if you were all flies on the wall. Uh, I tried to describe it in my note as briefly as possible because sometimes you'll get in trouble if you have thorough documentation. A little slap on the wrist. What do you think? I have all day to read about these instances of the people I'm trying to care for? I'm busy. Stop telling me what they said. That's not important at all. I don't know if you can tell I went into a character and that I was being sarcastic, but let me steer the car back onto the, onto the track. We're veering a bit. Patient U.S., if we look at what caused their crisis, we know a couple things. Obviously, early this morning, they are on the phone with somebody and that conversation has elevated them to a point of frustration and agitation. It appears that that's the initial circumstance. Now, we may not know immediately what was said on the phone, but the secondary effects 
that then allow patient U.S. to become, and I'm saying allow, to become even more agitated are when they then, due to their frustration, make a demand of something that takes time to happen. So let me use the situation I described in the note. So patient U.S. is somehow outwardly stimulated to the point of internal agitation at this point, and they immediately come up to the staff that have nothing to do with that initial stimulus. Whatever has gotten patient U.S. angry, the staff on the unit have nothing to do with it. And patient U.S. demands a medication from the doctor that was just discussed um, a couple hours ago. Or let's just make it make it a realistic timeline, just so everybody knows. Medications don't always immediately go through. You may meet with the doctor. They will fill things out in a chart. You have to fax that stuff to the pharmacy. The pharmacy has to fax it back if you're lucky. These things don't always happen immediately. So let's just make it a timeline in which it wasn't immediate. Prior to patient U.S. making their phone call, they had the appointment with the doctor. That's the best way to make this work. Patient U.S. had an appointment with the doctor. Then they called their uh, presumably parents, from what I understand, and now they're here. And while they are here, they are demanding something that could not be delivered immediately. And in fact, because of that timeline which I described, they are also asking for something that cannot be given to them. We cannot give them the medication to calm them down. We will be able to. We just can't in this moment. Patient U.S. then becomes more frustrated with the doctor. And as you can see from what I'm describing, we can take conceptually, yes, the word concept is back. I'm not sure I used it in the previous episode. We can boil all of these situational descriptions down to things that we can all relate to. The trickle-down effect. I'm going to be stimulated by something on my left that's going to make me agitated, and then I'm going to get frustrated and yell at something on my right because it's the next thing I see. And then after that, I'm going to get even more agitated and talk to something right in front of me that uh, did something wrong to me a couple weeks ago, and I'm going to let them remember it. I'm going to stir up a hornet's nest because of realistic timelines and human folly. Human folly even to the point that maybe if patient U.S.'s caregiver, parent number one or parent number two, got frustrated and had an argument on the phone with patient U.S., for some reason patient U.S. thinks they are the only one who is allowed to make mistakes during their recovery. And because of that, they are expecting perfection from everybody else, even the people who are trying as hard as they can to help patient U.S. get out. So now patient U.S. is attacking, and they start to slam their hand on the nurse's station very loudly. As you see some of the consumers who are also on the unit start to cover their ears, they start to get frightened. You see them start to scurry to their room. You see them start to pace. You see them start to bite their fingernails. You see the patients who have medications 
excuse me, the consumers who have medications going to get their PRNs, and PRNs are medications that are prescribed on an ad-needed basis. You palpably feel the energy on the room rising because of a string of stressful events. The first few, not the fault of patient U.S., the last one, the creation of patient U.S. That is why I said to them, Please consider where this path will lead, patient U.S. And when patient U.S. still chose to take that path, sadly, that is a choice. Unless, in those fits of rage, patient U.S. has lost the ability to listen appropriately because they are so consumed with what is happening internally that they consider nothing but themselves, an all-consuming, vacuous black hole of attention and control due to something internally in a tailspin. My goodness. I believe it is imperative that we teach emotional regulation to patient U.S. Now a message from our sponsors. Hey, it's me, Louis Jojo. Check out some of my fresh new music on ReverbNation.com slash Louis Jojo. You will find some old hits and some new demos from the musical that I've created meant to educationally entertain. Who could forget about Rise Up? I want to help you above it, but you turn me away. Yet I learn from each day that you're still deserving of grace. And so am I. I've been sent here to open eyes with smoke and rhyme. Keep the hope alive and survive. Cause we gon' rise. Rise up, Hey. And what about March With Me? One of the musical demos. What your part's to be. I'm in charge, so please just march with me. Let your hearts believe. Man, that is fresh with a capital F, if I could say so myself. So why don't all you cool cats strap on your cassette players and take a listen at ReverbNation.com slash LouisJojo. It's, it's a wonderful collection, I've got to tell you. Possibly not, uh, not what you would want to listen to at the gym, maybe. I'm not saying it's, it's workout music, but my, is it dense and loaded. Every word cleverly woven like, a, like an artisan tapestry. That's what, I would, that's what I would compare it to. I'm sure I'm biased. Big fan of that guy. Big fan of that guy. It's a shame to see him buried. But he's, he's finding a way. We'll happily sponsor him. So here we are. We are on our crisis edition. And here's the next interesting part. So we've kind of discussed what has brought us to crisis. And now I would like everyone to please listen as I describe what crisis looks like on a psychiatric unit. I would like to say first and foremost that more often than not, 
there are security guards during a crisis. Security guards with pepper spray, zip ties, any means that will help subdue a possible threat to themselves or to the others around them. It is not just a bunch of therapists or social workers or uh, psychiatrists standing around somebody who is actively agitated, talking them down. There are situations, many, 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 in which security was necessary. And our understandings of how to calm a person down just weren't working. Sometimes, in fits of rage, it appears we are losing our logic centers, we are truly becoming blinded by the high-energy emotions and energies we are experiencing, and we cannot always be talked down in any given moment. When these moments start to happen, these little explosions that I've been describing... When they start to occur, sadly, their blast radius is greater than the person exploding. So they take down lots of innocent bystanders repetitively by accident. Security guards are necessary, not as a threat, not as a show of force. You have to understand that one person may see it as a show of force and about 400, as in everybody else on the unit, will see it as a show of protection. Whose perspective? What empathy should we be giving in that moment? Empathy to one or empathy to many? The people who are fearful that are watching this crisis unfold have nothing to do with it. How much should they be worried about the person threatening them? How much are they meant to consider the feelings of the person putting their recovery at risk? Are they allowed to be angry? Are they allowed to be scared? Are they allowed to ask patient U.S. to please calm down? They are encouraged to see security, and so is the staff, because the staff was not taught how to handle criminal behavior, even if that behavior is being spawned or created by some sort of illness. There are moments in crisis, and I can say this as a consumer and as a professional, that the behavior goes beyond and that whatever means are necessary to end the threat, they must be done as least invasively as possible. The proverbial hands are tied of the people who are put in place to help keep order. And because of that, security guards have always been necessary. I'd like to reiterate, I can't think of many times that I ran a crisis that my beeper went off and I didn't show up and also see security. It will always be necessary to have people trained in what they are trained in, standing next to me as I know what I'm trained in. I was not always able to subdue a situation. I was happy to have a security guard around me. I'll tell you something else with a lot of pride. They were happy to have me around them. The best way to do it is in a balanced approach. 
As usual, security guards are necessary. There is a group of professionals usually standing behind the crisis leader and then a consumer. And it looks like another hostage situation. You have the negotiator and you have the person who is in charge of the chaos. When I was a crisis leader, I often asked the crisis team to stay further back. I didn't need them to be visible unless I needed them to be visible. We would plan out. Here's what we need to do. Please stay back here. I'll do this if I need you. And if I did that, they'd be there. And I would ask them to stand with me as I would try to listen. And I would ask them not to react to anything that I wouldn't react to because I was the closest to the threat. If I am standing here with a level of calm and I am in front of you and I am in the way of you getting hurt, allow me to do it the way I'm doing it. I am your offensive lineman. Don't tell me how to block. I'm keeping you safe. It is not a pretty position, but please appreciate it. The people who stand between you and the threats to your safety and security are brave. They keep you far enough away that you are safe enough to observe them and sadly safe enough to judge them. But realize that they are in between you and the threats to your safety, to your security, and to your recovery. In a crisis, the crisis leader or the security or whoever's on that front line, they are not only protecting the staff, they are doing everything they can to protect the person who is in this blind rage behaving outside of their own logical and moral compass. So they have double duty. They have to keep the people in front of them safe and the people behind them safe. They are in a very high-risk position in the middle. And if their threat responses aren't accurate, and if they're not able to handle high levels of stress without misperceiving certain things or, or starting to overreact because the energy is so high, you will have a powder keg and you will have a massive explosion. What could be more important than emotionally regulated people in power positions? What could be more dangerous than putting people who are possibly trying to find emotional regulation in positions of power? Wouldn't it be best for us to learn to control ourselves before we try to control situations? Who knows? How about a little transition music, baby? Imagine that it is your responsibility to treat a mentally ill child based solely on your perception. Imagine being allowed to mess up under the guise of psychology being an imperfect science. Can someone be disabled because of an inevitable mental illness? Or is this person just a product of a flawed system that is still trying to figure out solutions? The safety of being in control with no repercussions often leads to impulsive decision-making and a lack of accountability. The phrase perception is reality has done more harm than good for our society. That is the excerpt on the back of my book, Mental Health Disability, Perception versus Reality, now available on Amazon in ebook or paperback. It is so hard not to do the 
the uh, the baby back rib, the ba- the old baby back rib joke. Okay. So we've described a little bit about uh, what these dynamics look like. I'm not going to get into great detail about uh, the the takedowns or or any of the uh, gratuitous parts that I'm sure everybody would be so curious about because they are not situations in which uh, anybody is in their best hours. Not the people being taken down or the people taking them down. It is not an area in which I will ever derive pride from. Often, the best case scenario is an agreement to take a, a PRN medication that can usually be ordered immediately because of the immediacy of the situation. So you will also see, well, if, if we could get them their medication immediately, why couldn't we get them their medication immediately? Uh, if that makes sense. But if you remember back to the beginning of the episode, part of their frustration was that the medication they wanted wasn't there at that moment. So we're able to get it in crisis, but we don't need to do it the express way. If it's not a crisis, the question is, couldn't any time become a crisis? That's not a question that's often asked in real time and anybody can ask it in hindsight. So I don't really go there because I've just been involved in too many situations, and it's more important that I would describe that it, it's, it's ultimately a lose-lose no matter how well you function as a unit. A crisis is a situation that stinks. It's not an enjoyable situation, and it's usually a memory of, uh, of negativity. It's not a positive memory. It's not an empowering moment. We may even feel empowered during it because of our absence of awareness of what it is doing to us long-term or how far we've, we've strayed from ourselves. Now, all of that being said, I, I would like to say something personal as a consumer. I believe it's six, seven years ago, uh, the last time I was hospitalized on an inpatient unit. I went into the crisis center and clearly stated over and over, clearly, clearly, that I was in fact not suicidal and that I was just in need of a lot of help due to uh, the illness that I was suffering from um, accelerating. I said it to the first worker. I said it to the second worker. I said it to every person I spoke to because at that point, that point of my last hospitalization, I was very aware of how all this worked because I had worked there and I'd been doing it since I was a teenager. I knew what to say. I was honest about it and I was clear. I was also in crisis. I was just controlling my tailspin. And I will never forget the the tension and energy that was created when they still had a security guard stand in my room when they still had people monitor me 24-7, not even giving me privacy in my room at the crisis center. And even when I was moved to an inpatient facility, I was not allowed to go to the bathroom by myself without being observed for close to three days. All the while, showcasing no aggression, showcasing nothing but submissive obedience, and verbalizing out loud that I was not suicidal. 
There are rules of engagement when we are involved in any situation with more than just us. Any, even one single person, there are rules we possibly must follow out of the respect, the safety, and the security of all involved. I can say and justify in my mind that I am being, being nonviolent and still instigate and agitate to the point that someone could feel threatened and to the point that someone may react out of fear. It's the classic with a child, two children in the back of a car, somebody putting their finger as close to their, their sibling's face as they can and they say, I'm not touching you, I'm not touching you, I'm not touching you. And the other sibling saying, get your finger out of my face. And they say, well, I'm not touching you, I'm not touching you, I'm not touching you. And on and on this goes. This, my friends, is bullying. It's as much an aggressive act as actually poking someone in the face. You can get close and say, I'm not touching you, but we are completely ignoring the sanctity and the safety of boundaries. And we are calling it non-violent. I believe invasive is violent. I believe aggressive is violent. I believe purposefully trying to incite someone by scaring them is an act in a way of violence. I am not saying that it's an attack in the form that we understand it. It's not a punch. You're absolutely right. But it's terror. It's the creation of terror in others. And then when the others react and get in trouble, or possibly create a crisis, their lives get ruined. So if it's not violent, maybe, then I would say it's incredibly destructive. When we are in our fits of rage, our mentality is not clear. When we are in those fugue states in which we are so overridden with stimulus internally, that we act outside of our logic and our own moral compass, we are a threat. We cannot continue to blame the people who feel threatened when we act threatening. Patient U.S., I believe that you believe you are justified in this stance you are taking. Your intentions, I'm sure, are good or at least coming out of a place of self-preservation, which I can't blame you for, it's very scary to be in the situation you are in, and you have been triggered. But the behaviors that you exhibit are still more important than the words that you speak. And continuously saying that it is not your intention to scare others, and that it is only your intention to get what you need. I can't continuously believe you because on a daily basis, you are scaring others. Your behaviors are threatening. And because of that, no matter how often you say you are not trying to threaten, I do not need to believe it because I am not seeing a change. 
Now, how long should we expect a change? We talked earlier about things that take a long time, realistic timelines. Sure, I get it. But the idea that we need a realistic timeline for you to become considerate that your behaviors can negatively impact others and it's not their fault for being negatively impacted. The fact that we need to wait for a realistic timeline for you, patient U.S., to realize regardless of what your intentions may be, if your behaviors are destructive, that can be threatening The fact that a realistic timeline is necessary and that we must wait in this state in which there is a great threat on a daily basis because of your inability at this moment to regulate emotionally is scary. It's scary to you. It's scary to me. And it's scary to everyone else. I have to tell you right now, my intention is not to make you feel better because at this moment, you again have complete control and the attention of many people who are now fearful while they are forced to still stand here and try to help you calm down again. They are fearful because they remember where this path has taken them even two days ago. We are all being traumatized by how you are behaving during your traumatic experience. And that is why a crisis is never an enjoyable experience for anyone. It's never forgettable. I've had ECT multiple times, but I can tell you there are still crises that I will never forget no matter how much of my memory I lose. Crises often spawn out of well-intended behaviors. And when those behaviors are received in a way that the person exhibiting them isn't expecting and the circuit boards start to short and you start to see sparks and you realize that you are seconds away from an explosion, what is your responsibility? To hope, to look away, to intervene, to completely pacify. There is no answer. Every single crisis is unique. Our intentions are ultimately most understood through our behaviors. If it is your intention not to scare those around you, patient US, I ask you to remember your intention even when things are fine, even when you are calm, so that when you become escalated again, you can possibly have that thought in your own consciousness. You can possibly remember what it is you have said your intentions are and try to live up to your words. I'm gonna have to ask you to stand down, patient US. I'm gonna have to ask you to believe that at this moment, there is nothing I would rather than for you and I to go talk and for all these people to go away. I'm gonna have to ask you to trust me or not to trust me, but I am telling you once again that I'm here for you and that I will listen into all hours of the night if I have to, in order for us to stop engaging in these behaviors. Please believe me, patient US, 
please take some deep breaths and please know in the back of your mind somewhere that no matter how hard this gets, I will remain patient, U.S.